What is your biggest fear? Anybody afraid of spiders? Come on. You are, Millie. Oh, she doesn't like them at all. Anybody, what about uh, heights? Heights, yeah. Flying, airplanes. My parents had the privilege of flying home during, uh, and landing in Belfast International during Storm Gareth this week. And I think their prayer life is at a higher level than it has ever been. Um, people have other fear. Aviophobia is actually flying. Some people's biggest fear is this, glossophobia. And what's the way they always say to get over uh, public speaking fear? Picture the audience I never do that, okay? Like, that is not going to help me here. I just want to be honest. I will be rushing to the bathroom. Um, um, I used to have a fear of wasps. I mean, Becky used to make fun of me. If a wasp got anywhere near me or in the car, I would literally pull over the car and run. But I've got a bit tougher now. I think since I've come to hope, I've had to develop a thick skin, and nothing scares me much. But uh, years before we were mar- a few years before we were married, when I was still a happy bachelor, uh, we went, uh, me and, and four of my friends went to uh, California on a road trip, but we also spent a few days in Vegas uh, evangelizing the, with people with the gospel because they need Jesus too and, uh, and one of the guys who's with us I'm not going to name him in this service because this is the one going online but uh, we, he's a big guy football player six foot two big strapping lad and we got to the hotel the stratosphere in Vegas which is the one with the big tower and uh, and all was fine she gave us our, our key cards and we went to get into the elevator we were on the 16th floor and he started up the stairs and we said, let's call him Bill. We said, Bill, where are you going? And he said, I don't do elevators. And we said, but there's 16, 16, 16 stories. Like He said, I don't care. I don't do elevators. And for the next three or four days, every time he had to go up and down to our room, the big girl's blouse, he took the stairs. But it just shows that sometimes you can never know, actually from external appearances, what people are afraid of. Here's some other phobias that I came across, maybe less common ones. Anybody, I wonder, have pantherophobia? Fear of your mother-in-law. <laughs> I have lacanophobia, fear of vegetables. I don't eat vegetables. Uh, yeah, I hope none of you have this. Ablutophobia, fear of washing or bathing. Um, if you have somebody beside you who has that, feel free just to, to move slowly away. I, I do think I have this one, catatrophobia, fear of mirrors. I never look in a mirror. Um, oh, come on. Haters going to hate. Um, we definitely don't have this one, jellophobia, fear of laughing. That's good that we don't have this. Uh, heliophobia, don't have this one either, fear of the sun. Uh, Tyrannophobia, fear of being tickled by feathers. Anybody want to confess? I just don't like being tickled. Um, full stop. Papaphobia, uh, where I grew up, they had this fear of the Pope. Um, some fellas here have this one. And if your girlfriend's beside you, she can give you a nudge now. Commitment phobia, avoidance of long term relationships. Um, homiliophobia is actually fear of sermons. Um, and revophobia is fear of ministers. I made that last one up. But we all have things that cause us fear. And sometimes they're small fears like insects or wasps. I hate those little kind of crusty insects. They freak me out a bit. Or sometimes it's big fear. Sometimes it's consuming fear. Sometimes it's overwhelming fear. Sometimes it's fears that can actually control us, paralyze us, and actually inhibit us from being the men and women God wants us to be. And in this story, we have seen uh, an army who are consumed by fear, who are paralyzed into passivity by fear. And they are God's people. They are Israel. And yet for 40 days and 40 nights, they have watched this other army called the Philistines taunt them. And one guy in particular, the mass of brass, Goliath, the, the giant, the, the human weapon of mass destruction. For 40 days and 40 nights, he has come out and taunted God's people and called them to send somebody to fight him. And they all run off terrified for 40 days and 40 nights. 80 times, almost six weeks. And the thing is this, there are some battles that you have to fight. There are some things that are not going to go away. Yes, 
There are some things you can walk away from, and we have talked about that, that you pick your battles carefully, that not every battle is yours. And actually, when you fight battles that God never intended you to fight, you end up exhausted, empty, and drained. But there are some battles that you're called to fight and that you can't walk away from, and that the longer you put it off, the more actually the fear starts to control and consume you. Because for 40 days, they had been listening to his voice, and every day his voice seemed louder, and every day his stature seemed a little bigger. And we saw then last week that David arrives in the scene. David didn't go to start a fight. David just went to deliver sandwiches. David was going in obedience to his father. His three brothers were down on the battle line and his dad says, will you go? And uh, David, uh, even though he had been anointed king, he still was willing to do the ordinary and the everyday and the mundane. And he goes down to the battle line. And he was sent there to bring sandwiches. He was sent there with one purpose, but God had a greater purpose. He was sent to be the delivery boy for sandwiches and yet God wanted him to be the, the deliverer of his people. And sometimes God has you in a place for a different reason than you think. And we said this last week, that you think you're just in your job. You think you're just in your family. You think you're just working in a shop. You think you're just in your town. You think you're just in in your family situation where God actually has you there for a greater purpose. And as you are faithful in the small things, in the everyday, in the ordinary, and in the mundane, God shows up. God rarely announces big moments in advance. They just happen in everyday faithfulness. Because big faithful, or small faithfulness is big to God. Faithfulness is more important than fame to God. See, we live in a world that's obsessed by fame and reality TV. And everybody wants to be famous. OK Magazine, social media. God doesn't give a rip about that stuff. What he cares about is small faithfulness. Everyday, ordinary obedience. Just doing what he has asked you to do. And, and, uh, and so David shows up and we saw that uh, he starts asking people because he's hearing the taunts from Goliath. He starts asking people, well, what will be done for the man who takes this guy on? He's looking around at this army and he's wondering why they're all dressed and ready for battle, but none of them are fighting. And he said, well, what will happen? And they said, well, actually, Saul has promised three things, great wealth. Exemption from taxes and his daughter in marriage. Which daughter, the good-looking one? Okay, might be worthwhile. And so, um, and so he begins to consider stepping up. But the first giant he has to fight before he fights Goliath is the giant of criticism. Because Eliab, his older brother, the one who assumed he would be anointed king, he immediately tears into his wee brother. And he starts to attack him, starts to attack his job as a shepherd, but then he starts to attack his heart. And there's one thing, having what you do being attacked, it's another thing when people start to attack your heart, when they start to attack your motives. And, and the thing that Eliab attacked was his heart. He said, your heart is deceitful. And the thing that God loved most about David was his heart. You're a man after my own And very often the place the enemy will go after in your life is the place that God loves most. Because he knows that that's where you're going to be most effective. Why would the enemy attack you in somewhere that actually you're not going to be effective at all? You're not going to make a difference. But the place that God loves most about you, the place that he wants to use most. And sometimes actually looking at where I'm being attacked is a good sign of where God wants to use me. Actually, analyzing where the enemy enemy is strategizing his attack is actually a really good way sometimes of going, actually, where is the place that God wants me to be most effective? And so he receives this harsh, brutal criticism from his brother. And one of the things I didn't say last week is this. Those transition moments in your life, those significant moments of change, because this was a significant, David didn't realize it yet, But this was a significant moment. He didn't go there to fight a battle. He just went to deliver bread. But this was going to be the turning point. Nothing from this day forward in his life would ever be the same again. And those transition moments in our lives reveal relationships. Transition reveals relationships. It doesn't just show you your relationships. It actually reveals your relationships. And here's what I mean is that that, that David probably had an okay relationship with his brothers before then. But actually, when he stepped up, 
when he grew, when he became more than just the wee brother out in the field looking after the sheep, they couldn't handle it. And they wanted nothing to do with him. And there are some people who like a past version of you. Some people who like who you were five years ago when you were going out every night and getting drunk with them or when you were talking like them or when you were acting like them or when you were gossiping like them. They like that version of you. They just don't like the new version of you. And they keep trying to relate to the old version of you when you have changed. And actually, here's what you've dis- I've discovered is that not everybody can go with you on the journey. There's some people who have gone this far, but they can't go the rest of the way. And that's okay. There are some people in your life who you thought you would grow old with and do life with and spend, uh, you know, you'd have matching sweatshirts and go on holidays together forever that suddenly you find yourself growing apart from. And sometimes that's okay. Because you have changed and they haven't. And they're still relating to you as you were, but you're actually now somebody else and actually if you're pursuing God it's okay if people don't go on the journey with you I was listening to Paul Scanlon I was down this week at a leadership conference in in Belfast and Paul Scanlon who started uh, Abundant Life Church in Bradford a a church of two or three thousand people in Bradford when he started it um, and started to turn a very inward looking church around in 1999 there were 600 people in the church and 300 left like, I would go home depressed. Like, that's a bad day. Do you know what I mean? Like, half your church leaves. Uh, and, and I asked him, I said, Paul, what was going on inside you? Like, how did you deal with that? Because we're all human and we feel things. And when people walk away from you, people who you love and you thought you would, I said, Paul, what was going on inside you? And he says, yes, it hurt. And I, he says, I used to have a lot of, you know, real sort of nights where just lamb a bed and struggle and think it through. And then he said, I, I realized this, that I'm a driver on a bus and God has given me a destination. And people get on the bus and people get off the bus. And every time somebody gets off a bus, the bus driver doesn't cry. He just realizes somebody has got off. What does that make? More room for somebody else to get off. And if God has given you a vision for your life, a vision for your future, you've got to recognize that some people won't have the heart for that. Some people just will not take the journey with you, and that's okay. Don't have a breakdown every time somebody leaves your life. I have had people in my life who I thought I would grow old with and do life forever. They were literally like a brother to me, and I haven't spoken to them in years, and that's okay. I don't sit and grieve over it. I don't sit and lament over it. I just go, you know what? God took us in different directions. And that's okay. And they're doing their thing and I'm doing mine. But as long as you're pursuing the place and the path and the direction God has for you, realize that some people just will not be able to go with you. Paul Scanlon also said this to me the other day. He said, people walked away from Jesus. And he was pretty cool. <laughs> like people walked away from Jesus. We read that time and time again. People just walked away from him. And there was nothing wrong with him. And so just be aware that there's people who can't go all the way. There's people who go part of the journey with you. But because they've gone part of the journey doesn't mean they have to go the whole journey. And so many people get turned back at the giant of criticism. Because criticism affects us deeply. I don't care how confident or how brash or how bold you seem. Criticism gets us at the core of who we are. When we're misunderstood, when we're criticized, when our motives are questioned. And a lot of us are too preoccupied with what people will think. Or with what people will say. And that's why we don't do what we know God is calling us to do. A lot of us care more about what people think about us than what God thinks about us. And we would never say that out loud, but in our hearts we fear men and women more than we fear God. And sometimes we fear people who we don't even care about or who don't care about us. And yet we are controlled by the opinions of others. Maybe in your work, maybe in your family, whatever sphere you're in, 
Their voice is more important than God's voice. And their voice is keeping you contained and, and, and constricted when God has called you to more. Stop living your life being controlled by the opinion of people who God has not actually called to have that voice in your life. And I love what David did. He didn't run off on a huff. He didn't stop home to dad. He didn't get a stone in a sling and strike Goliath down. He just turned away. Some of us need to learn the turn. Some of us need to learn the turn. That actually every time somebody criticizes us, every time somebody says something to us, we don't need to get into a full-blown battle. We just need to learn to turn. And he just turned. Because he realized that the battle wasn't against his brother, the battle was against Goliath. And some of us need to do what Taylor Taylor Swift said, shake it off. Just shake it off. Because the haters are going to hate, 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 hate. And you just need to shake it off. Because if you carry that stuff into your future, it will weigh you down. Walk away. Not every battle is your battle. Not every cause is your cause. Don't weigh into fights that have nothing to do with you and that God has never called you to fight. But then there's other times when you don't go looking for a fight, but God puts a battle in front of you. And that's what we're going to see here. So Saul, David starts asking what's going to happen. Saul overhears it and he's desperate. And, uh, and, and so David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Verse 32. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Poor David can't get a break. Like he's just had his brother turn to shreds. He turns away, goes to Saul. You're trying to do the right thing because very often criticism will come even if you're trying to do the right thing. He goes to Saul. Saul, I think I can do this. And Saul looks at him and says basically two things. You're not able, you're only. You're not able, you're only. You're not experienced enough. You're not old enough. You're not ready enough. You're not prepared enough. You're not gifted enough. You're not, you're not, you're not. And starts telling him what he is not. Starts speaking discouragement and fear and negativity over him. You know, I'm not saying that we should have live in this bubble. You know, we're, we're kind of taught these days that you tell your children that they can do anything they want in life. You can do anything. Like, they can't. Let's just be honest. Like, I was never going to be a basketball player. You know? Five foot nine and three quarters was not going to happen. Like they can't do everything. Like our little boy Elijah, bless him. Like he is gifted in many things, but he's not that athletic. Like P1 sports day, three races. Somehow that kid managed to come last in all three. And he still thinks he's like a gazelle or a cheetah. Like that's confidence for you right there. And we affirm that. But really, we know he's not going to be an athlete. But you know what we do see? We see that he's got brains. In P1, he was reading P3 books. We see that he loves the Lord. We see that he's sensitive to things. We see that he's got emotional intelligence. We see that he's so creative. He loves drawing and making things. We see that he's a wee fighter. He loves getting boxing gloves on and punching the lining out of me. He loves getting, he's a wee man. He loves getting a pen knife and sharpening a stick. He's, I, and that's the stuff I want to focus on. I don't want to tell him he can do anything and everything. I want to tell him these are the things you're great at. This is where I want you to grow. This is what God has for you because God made him a certain way and we're going to see that a little bit more in a minute. But here's the thing. Some of you are good at things. Some of you have been called and gifted and equipped by God to do things but you're not doing them because people in authority spoke stuff over you and it has limited you. Whether it be parents, pastors, bosses, They said, you cannot do this, you're not able, and it has created a glass ceiling, and actually, you can't do it. Like, Saul said, you can't do it. I think he might have been wrong there. Spoiler alert for next next time, but I think he might have been wrong. He was placing a ceiling on David that God had never placed on David, because God had put something inside David that Saul could not see. 
And some of you need to push through those words that have been spoken over you, that have limited you and constricted you and contained you and made you smaller than God ever created you to be. But look at how David responds, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Again, doesn't, David doesn't get emotional and storm off when he's discouraged by Saul. Remember, this guy's a teenager right now. How do teenagers respond? They go into the room, they slam the door, and they put in headphones. And they thump about for a while. David doesn't do that. He doesn't throw a hissy fit. He doesn't go back to Jesse and complain about his bad brothers or the bad king. He looks at the king, and they understand where he looks. He looks at his past. And David looks back at his past, and he says, You know what? I have never fought a giant like this, but I have fought a lion. And I have fought a bear. And I've grabbed them by the hair. And I've beaten them with a stick. And I've beaten the living daylights out of them. And you know what? I know he's not a giant. I know they're not a giant. But they're not that different. And some of us need to reach into our past. And grab it into our present. To give us faith and confidence to fight the future. You see in church we always said. Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. You know, put the past behind you. And that's okay in one sense. There's times when we need to go into our past to remember how God was faithful back there. And if he was faithful back there, we can take that faithfulness into the future because victories are transferable. The battles are different. The giants are different. The obstacles are different. The oppositions are different. The problems are different. But the God is the same. And they're not that different. And some of us forget what we have been through when we're going through what we're going through. Like everyone in this room has been through hard stuff. You just need to have lived a few years. Every person I'm looking at in this room has been through hard stuff. You've had loss. Deep loss, hurt, grief. You've had people leave your life. You've been betrayed, you've been hurt, you've been lied about. You've been fired. You've been bankrupt. You've been broke. You've nearly been on the street. You've had children who are rebellious. You have had horrendous. You've had disease. You've had cancer. You've had all sorts of stuff. But you know what? You are still here. And yet we forget that. Because sometimes we're so future focused that we forget what we have been through. And the God who brought us through that thing five years ago when we thought we would never get through. When we didn't want to get out of our beds with depression. When we were so down and so discouraged and so low. The God who brought us through that five years ago is the God who will bring us through what we're facing right now. Because he is the same God. Our circumstances change, our problems change, but God never changes. And sometimes we need to recall and remember and go back and grab those things from the past and put them in front of us and write them down and go, God who brought me through that will bring me through this. In the Old Testament, they used to set up what they call stones of remembrance. Whenever God gave them a victory, whenever he did something great, whenever he parted a river or a sea, they set up a stone of remembrance. And whenever anybody else came past, they would say, that stone reminds us that God did a miracle. We maybe don't need to set up big rocks in our garden, but maybe we just need a journal. Maybe we just need to write things down. Maybe we need to put something on our wall. Maybe we need to put post-its on our mirror that remind us that the God who has been faithful He has never failed us. He has never let us down. Yes, it seemed like he had. It seemed like he had forgotten about us. It seemed like he had failed us. It seemed like he wasn't answering our prayers. It seemed like we were never going to get through it. And yet, here you are. And if you're here today, it is a testimony to the resilience of you and the greatness of God. 
And that's what David does. He reaches back, pulls into his present to face the future. And some of you need to do that. Some of you need to go, I've been through this or I've been through something similar before and he hasn't failed me and he's not going to fail me now. Heard a story about a, two elderly couples who were enjoying friendly conversation. And one of the men asked the other, Fred, how was that memory clinic you went to last month? Outstanding, Fred replied. They taught us all the latest psychological techniques for remembering things. It made a huge difference for me. That's great, said his friend. What was the name of that clinic? Fred went blank. And he thought and thought and couldn't remember. Then a smile broke across his face and he asked, What do you call that flower with a long stem and thorns? You mean a rose? Yes, that's it. And he turned to his wife and said, Rose, what was the name of that memory clinic we went to last month? Some of us have selective spiritual amnesia. We remember things God wants us to forget and we recall things, and we forget things he wants us to recall. We remember the things that we should forget and we play them over in our minds and God said, move on from that. And we forget the things we need to recall. We forget the things we need to remember. Different battles, different problems, same God. Look at what he says. He says the Lord. He says the living God. David is conscious that it is not his skill. It is not his ingenuity. It is not his bravery. But it is Yahweh, the living God. Because if it was down to him, he may or may not win. But if it's God plus David, that's the majority. And his mind is a God-saturated mind, while everybody else has a Goliath-saturated mind, because his mind is filled with the worship of God and the word of God. You know, this is the biggest challenge he's had to face, but it's not that much bigger. I mean, a lion and a bear are pretty big. And sometimes you can look at something and it can feel much bigger than anything, but break it down. It's not that much bigger. It's not that much bigger than the worst thing you've been through. And sometimes we need to actually see things as they are through the eyes of faith, not through the eyes of fear. And victories are transferable. What I mean is this, that the victory God gave you then you can carry into the present and face the future. Victories are transferable. Stephen Furtick, I like, he says this, the key to confidence is making a connection between your last victory and your next battle. The key to confidence is making a connection between your last victory and your next battle. And here's what I mean by this. Years ago, when when I first started doing this, when I was first ordained, my friend Barry Ford, who's a a minister from Portadown here, him and I were chatting about preaching and and just, we're talking about nerves and just, you know, whether you get nervous or not. And he said, well, we, you know... It's not nervousness so much as, but we're never casual about it, as you can probably tell. Um, and 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 we, but at that stage we were, uh, we were a bit green and 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 fairly new at this, and, and and we both said the same thing. We said whenever we do feel those nerves, here's what we do: we remind ourselves of one or two things. We remind ourselves God has called us to this. We didn't volunteer. And then we remind ourselves of the other times we've been nervous, and He's come through for us. And if he came through for us then, he'll come through for us today. It might not be amazing, but he'll come through for us. As long as I've done the prep, as long as I've done the work, he'll come through. Because you know what? He who has been faithful will be faithful. What have you been through? And I don't mean that as a rhetorical question. I want you to think about the worst thing you've been through. Not to depress you today, but to actually say to you, well done. Well done that you've held on through that. Well done that God has put a, that you've allowed God to put a resilience in you. You know, on Friday, my friend was at our house. My friend who lost her husband three months ago to cancer. My friend with her three little girls was sitting around our table. And she was declaring the faithfulness of God. And not in a trite way. Not in a way where you go, I think she's not dealing with it. You know the way sometimes you, you, it feels like a veneer? It was a really honest way. 
And I just, I saw the faithfulness of God in her life in a way. And do you know why that's there? It's because of her history with God. See, we all have a history with God. We all have a history with God. Our history with God is longer for some people and shorter for some people. But we all have a history with God. And here's the thing. That your history with God isn't a public history, it's a private history. Your history with God is behind closed doors. Because here's what I want to say next. Public victories will always be preceded by private victories. David fought the lion and the bear in the sheep field when it was just him. But he was going to fight Goliath on the battlefield when there was a crowd there. And you will not win the public victories in your life unless you learn how to fight the private battles. And there's so many people who we've seen in our society who seem to have it all, who seem to have great power and authority and prestige, and yet we watch them fall because they had a public facade but a private failure. They had never dealt with their private world. And you know what? You can never be sustained in any success in your life if you allow your public world to become bigger than your private world. about any of that. I care about who you are when you're at home, when you're in your bedroom, when you're on your knees, when you're with your wife, when you're with your husband, when you're with your kids, when you're with your friends. That's who I care about, not the filter you on Instagram. And you will never have public victories before private devotion. You see, David had spent years in isolation as an unknown shepherd. He wasn't even invited to his own party when Samuel came to anoint the king. He was underappreciated, undervalued, and yet in that place, God was preparing him. See, most people today want to be discovered. They don't want to be developed. Remember back in the day, old photographs? Like we've got these things now where we just take photographs and they're there instantly. Remember when you had to get them developed? Where did the development take place? What was the room called? The dark room. And if the door was opened on the dark room, they were ruined. Some of us need space in the dark room to be developed. Some of us aren't developed properly because it's all out there and there's nothing taking place back there. And God says, I don't actually really care that much who you are in public. Because if you deal with the private stuff, if you deal with the stuff behind the scenes, what you present in public, you won't have to worry about. Some people are exhausted trying to put on a facade and a face. And we live in a culture which is sick of it because we've seen it with politicians and we've seen it with religious leaders and we've seen it with some, the Me Too thing and people in power and prestige and people we trusted and the facade has come down and people trust nobody these days. And you know what the world needs to see? It doesn't need to see perfect Christians. It just needs to see real Christians. It needs to see authentic Christians. It needs to see transparent Christians. It needs to see Christians who might not have it all together but they know they don't have it all together and they're willing to admit they don't have it together but they just say this is who I am but you're trying in the private place to make sure your heart is right with God before you present a public facade David had worshipped and warred in private so that he could war and win in public they say that integrity is who you are when no one is looking Integrity is who you are, man, when your wife has gone to bed at night and you're sitting on your phone. Integrity is who you are when you're in work and you can just change the figures a little bit on your expenses. Integrity is who you are when you're texting that person from your past who you really shouldn't be texting. Integrity is who you are when you treat people who have nothing that they can offer you and how you treat them, either with respect or derision. David had spent so much time alone with God that no man intimidated him. Remember Andrew McCourt, my friend who used to be the pastor of CFC. Years ago, he was a, he had a friend who worked in one of the big posh car showrooms in Boucher. And his friend brought him down. There was an open day and they had the Maseratis and all these amazing cars out in the showroom. 
And they went for a walk around the back, and there was this huge building at the back. And my friend Andrew said to his friend, what's that? He said, that's the service center. And he discovered this. The service center was three times bigger than the showroom. Some of us are really great at the showroom. But behind the scenes in the service center, we're a mess. And God would say to us, deal with the private stuff and you won't have to worry about the public stuff. This thing was nothing for David because of his private world, because of the time he had spent with God. Today is St. Patrick's Day. And you know, it's one of those things that sometimes some people shy away from. No tradition owns St. Patrick's, folks. St. Patrick. Like, this is pre-Reformation, okay? He was just a Christian. But St. Patrick was brought to Ireland. He was kidnapped and brought kind of as a slave. And when he was brought here, he had been brought up with a mother who had taught him about God and taught him about Jesus. And he had rebelled and he had lived a wild life. But when he came here, you know what he ended up doing? He was a shepherd. Coincidence? I'm not sure. He was a shepherd. And he said this. He says, well, he, he found himself at rock bottom and everything was taken away from him. And he began to recall the faith his mom had taught him. He began to remember the words his mom had spoken to him. And these are his own words. These are the words of St. Patrick. After I arrived in Ireland, I found, I found myself pastoring flocks daily. And I prayed a number of times each day. More and more the love and fear of God came to me. And faith grew and my spirit was exercised until I was praying up to a hundred times a day. And in the night nearly so often. So that I would even remain in the woods in the morning in the snow, frost and rain. Waking to pray before first light. Maybe that's why Ireland was transformed. Not because he was a great preacher. Not because he was eloquent but because he was a man who had spent time on his knees in this secret place developing a history with God. And my final point today, and this is as far as we're going to get. Don't wear Saul's armor. Verses 38 to 40. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David David fastened on his sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go on these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. So Saul is the king. Who's the person you're going to protect most in the army? The king. His armor is going to be the best. It's going to be the thickest. It's going to be the heaviest. But remember what we also learned about Saul? Tall Saul. It's going to be the biggest. And so he says to David, David, okay, if you're determined to go and fight this big big oaf, wear my armor. Put on my armor. And so David puts it on, and it's ridiculous. And he's walking around, and it's way too big for him. I remember when when I was going to a wedding years ago, I was a poor student and didn't have a suit of my own. So I borrowed one from a friend, Richard Irwin. The problem was Richard's six foot three. And I went to this Sweden and I looked stupid. Like, I looked ridiculous. You know, the jacket was down to here. The trousers were, like, tripping me up. I, this is kind of how David looked. He's walking around in Saul's armor and it looks ridiculous. It just doesn't work. It's too big, it's too heavy, and it's tripping him up. But here's what Saul's doing. Saul is trying to make David do things the way Saul would do them, even though he wasn't doing them. (laughs) It's funny how people do that, isn't it? They try to make you do something the way they would do it, but they're not doing it. He was trying to make David copy him, wear my armor, look like me, do it my way. But the problem was this. Saul's armor was made for Saul not for David. Saul's armor fitted Saul perfectly, but it was never going to fit David. And my point is simply this, that God has given you certain gifts, certain abilities, certain talents, certain skills, certain passions, certain dreams, certain desires, certain burdens that are completely unique to you. There's nobody else God has made just like you. You are an original. 
And for some of you, that's more obvious than others. There's nobody like you. But don't become a cheap imitation of somebody else. Because the Bible says in Psalm 139 that he took great care in making you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made by the hands of a careful creator who formed you just the way you are. So don't try to be anyone else. Yes, it's good to learn from other people. Yes, it's good to admire other people. But don't try to copy them because you are not them and you will end up being a cheap imitation of them and a poor original of yourself. The way my generation does things is different to the way my parents' and grandparents' generation does things. And the way Elijah's generation does things will be different than mine. And I can't try and enforce upon him or upon them the way I do things, and vice versa. The culture we live in today is different than the culture that many of you grew up with. The challenges are different. The giants are different. We didn't have these things when I was a kid. These things have changed everything, and they're not, it's not going back, folks. And so this is something we need to confront and deal with that our parents never had to deal with. But our kids at seven years old are flying through these things and whizzing through games and computers, and it would give us a headache. We're not living in 1974 anymore, folks. The way church is done has to change. You know, a lot of churches are still on the cutting edge of the 18th century. And they wonder why. They scratch their heads and they can't figure out why nobody's showing up on a Sunday. Because everybody drives around the country listening to organ music and canticles. That was a joke. (laughs) Nobody does. But they call it demographics. That's what we were told in Dublin by the minister half a mile down the road from us. He said, nobody's coming to my church anymore because of demographics. I said, what? He said, demographics. All the Church of Ireland people have moved away from the area. He said, what about your place? I said, we're struggling to find room to fit them in. But you know what he was saying? He was saying, all the Church of Ireland proddy people have moved away from this area. As if that's the only people that God has called us to go after. You see, we can make excuses for why things aren't working, but maybe we're trying to sell cassette tapes in an MP3 age. Maybe we're trying to open extra vision in a Netflix age. And we're wondering why it's not working. Things have changed. We need to change with them. And the way we do things here will not be the way they were done two years ago even, as you've probably realized. And the way we do things two years from now will not be the way they're done now. Because the world is moving faster than ever. And if we don't keep up with it, but in a godly way with the convictions and stuff that we have, we are going to be left behind because most of the church in this country is left behind. And that is why they're being turned into restaurants, mosques, and carpet warehouses. I predict that in the Republic of Ireland, 50% of churches are going to close in the next 10 years. And that's a good thing. Because they're dead already. And when you have a dead church, it points to a dead Jesus. And I just pray that God raises up new churches and new leaders to go in and take over those buildings. Do you know, there's black churches all over the republic that are thriving and full of life. There's Pentecostal churches in every little town and village that are thriving and full of life. I would love to see them move into some of those old buildings and breathe new life into those dead bones. And so, yes, we honor the past. And yes, there's nothing wrong with being respectful, but we do not live in the past. We do not put on Saul's armor because it does not fit us. And I want to say to you that you do not have to meet the expectations of everybody around you. God made you to be you. And they might think you need to fit into this mold, or you need to do this, or you need to do that, or you need to be like this, or when you grow up you need to do this, this, or this, because that's what respectful people do. And in your heart you want to do something different. Follow what God has called you to do. David knows what gifts and abilities he has. And one of these is this. He can take a bit of leather and a stone and he's a really good shot with it. It's not that exciting. It's not that impressive. But you know what? It'll do. And that's what he uses. 
He knows his strengths and he knows his weaknesses and he plays to his strengths. And I want to say to you, play to your strengths. It used to be people would say, be a jack of all trades, you know, learn everything. This is not the day. This is the day of specialization. And I say this to young people all the time. Find out one thing you're good at and focus 80% of your time on it. And you'll never be without a job. And try to make it something that a machine can't replace you. (laughs) That's the other thing I tell them. Try to do something that a machine in five years can't replace you. But focus on developing the gifts God has given you. You know, everyone in this church has a part to play. We're a body with different parts. And God has pulled us together so that we can all play our part. And I'm not going to be like you and you're not going to be like me. But as we work together with our own unique gifts, talents and abilities, God's kingdom will be extended. And so, in David's day, wearing the king's armor should have been a huge honor but it was actually going to be more dangerous for David because it wasn't made for him. Saul wasn't being nasty. Saul was trying to be helpful. And there's people who will try to put things on you and they're not being nasty or harmful. They're trying to be helpful, but they just don't fit you. Do you ever find someone who has a cause that they're passionate about and they believe that every other person they meet should have the same passion for it? Vegans. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that came into my head. How do you know someone's a vegan? They tell you within three seconds. Um, you can't fight me, you're too weak anyway. Um, maybe we should put the first one on the podcast this week. Um, but do you ever get that? What I want to say to you is just because somebody else is passionate about something doesn't mean you have to be passionate about it. Like there's people in this room who are evangelists. And we should all evangelize, okay? So don't get me wrong. But there's people who are evangelists. They are called to it. Like, like they buy 99 ice cream and the person's on their knees saying the sinner's prayer. You know what I mean? But they believe that all of us should be out there right now talking around the estates, talking to everybody about Jesus. There's people who are really into the poor and social action and they believe that we should all live in Oxfam clothes for the rest of our lives and give everything to the poor. And you know what, I admire that, and it's good to give to the poor, and it's good to evangelize, but your passion is not going to be their passion, and, your pa- and theirs isn't going to be yours. So don't let them put their armor on you, and don't you put yours on them. But as we work together with their passion and your passion, we get a complete body, and it works beautifully. Some Christians get caught up in moral issues and causes, and you know what happens? That cause ends up replacing Christ in their lives. I've seen it. Should it be anti-abortion or anti-gamma or whatever that is, they, they get caught up in it for the right reasons, but then that cause actually replaces Christ. <laughs> and that's what they live for is the cause and not Christ. David realized that this was not about him. This was not about his passion. This was about the kingdom. This was about God. This was about the honor and glory of Yahweh. It wasn't just his little pet issue. And that's really what it comes down to in the end. It's about the power of God. It's about the name of God. It's about the glory of God. It's all about God. And David mightn't have had much, but he had history with God. And he realized that that it wasn't him against Goliath. It was David plus God against Goliath. So how could he lose? And it's not just you against your problem. It's you plus God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Another little St. Patrick's story, just to keep it. You know, the Irish typically have always had a very sort of superstitious, supernatural side to them. And so when Patrick arrived in Ireland, paganism was a dominant religion. The Druids were the priests, if you like. And they were seen as having supernatural magical powers which caused great fear among the general population. Patrick never tried to persuade people against believing in the supernatural because he knew that wouldn't happen. Rather, he confronted head-on the magic and occultism of the Druids by proclaiming and demonstrating that the power of Christ was greater. 
And from the very start as well as preaching the good news about Jesus, Patrick and his team prayed for healing. They cast out demons and they performed signs and wonders. And one historian has written this. If Christianity had come to Ireland only with theological doctrines, the hope of immortal life and ethical issues without miracles, mysteries and rites, it could never have wooed the Celtic heart. In other words, if it had just been preaching without a demonstration of power, Patrick would have failed. And yet that's what much of the church has been trying to do for centuries. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, my message and my preaching were not just with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And as Patrick preached, and as he proclaimed, and as he showed, and as he demonstrated the gospel message, the reverence that the Irish once held for their old idols was replaced by a hatred towards these demons. As you can imagine, the Druids didn't take this very well. And throughout his life, Patrick faced a lot of opposition. He wrote this. He said, daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, but I fear none of these things because of the promises of heaven. I have cast myself into the hands of Almighty God, who rules everywhere. And there's many stories from his life of confrontations between the power of God and the power of darkness. In one of them, a druid invoked demons and brought a dark fog over the land. Patrick said to the druid, cause the fog to disperse, but he wasn't able to do it. Patrick prayed, gave his blessing, and suddenly the fog cleared and the sun shone. And through the prayers of Patrick, flames of fire consumed the druid. This is like Old Testament stuff. The king summoned his council, the king of Ireland summoned his council and said, it is better for me to believe than to die. And he believed, as did many others that day. And on one occasion, Patrick became aware, and this is my last thing, I'm going to pray this prayer. Patrick became aware of an ambush had been set to kill him. He was on his way to the king's court to preach the gospel to the king, and he became aware that there was an ambush on the road on the way to the king's court, and there were people waiting to kill him. So as they marched, they chanted what later has become known as St. Patrick's breastplate. And I'm going to pray it in a second. But the story goes that the Druids lay in hiding, ready to kill. But they didn't see Patrick and his men. Instead, all they saw was a gentle doe followed by 20 fawns. St. Patrick and his men were saved. And while legend has it that St. Patrick drove the, de- or drove the snakes out of Ireland, I think the snakes represent the demons. Because how does Satan show up as a snake? I think that means that evil spirits were driven out of Ireland and replaced with the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of Christianity that's going to win this land, north and south. Hard border, soft border in the 21st century. It's not just a Christianity of words. It's not just a nice Christianity. It's not just a wishy-washy Christianity. It's got to have power. Our faith is a supernatural faith because our God is a supernatural God. And to to God, the supernatural isn't supernatural. It's natural. It's ordinary. And I pray that we would become a naturally supernatural people. Will you stand with me?